Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series to the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 85 and a prayer for renewal. Would you please join me now in prayer? Lord, we are so thankful that your word is true and that it speaks not only across all the centuries of every age and every season of our life, but Lord, it speaks to us in our seasons and in our lives. So Lord, as we look at this great uh, book of Psalms, Psalm 85 specifically, Lord, I pray today that, that you would give us ears to hear what you would have to say. That, Lord, if we are apathetic, if we are discouraged, if we are wearied, if we are anxious, if we are bitter, if we're holding a grudge, if we're depressed, if we're lonely, Lord, your word has something to say to us. It speaks to us. This is the word of the living God in which we are to open and hear and study and meditate upon. So, Lord, give us ears to hear what you would have to say to us through this great psalm, Psalm 85. And help us, Lord, to, to know you more, to know more of your grace, more of the wonder of the cross and the resurrection and the beauty and the tapestry of your grace unfolded in this psalm and in the whole Bible. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 85. Psalm 85 says this, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Well, this is our reading today from the Word of God. May God bless both the preaching of his Word and the hearing of his Word for his honor and glory alone. One of the high points of biblical spirituality that is defined as opening the Word of God and seeing what it says and understanding what it means in light of what God has said in his 66 books. So one of the high points of biblical spirituality it, it occurs in the prayer of repentance by King David after his sin with Bathsheba. In fact, in Psalm 51, David prayed not only to be forgiven, but also for spiritual revival and restoration in Psalm 51, 10 through 12, which says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take, me, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the, the joy. Uh, yeah, let me say that again. Let me start over there. Psalm 51, 10 through 12. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. This same longing is expressed in Psalm 85 with a desire for the entire national nation's renewal. Now, we're not told the occasion, but the evidence fits the years after God's people return to Jerusalem from the Babylonian exile, which is at least an ideal illustration of this psalm's purpose. Now, the Jews first returned to their holy city in response to the decree of Cyrus in 538 BC. Soon after, the foundation of a new temple was laid, but work was bogged down and the people became discouraged. The city was in ruins while the people were vulnerable and insecure. The book of Haggai rebukes them for withholding their tithes, which resulted in poor harvest from the Lord. The prophet Zechariah was given visions of success to encourage them, and in the years after 520 BC, the temple was completed. After this, they sought to rebuild the city walls. This work also uh, was bogged down until Nehemiah arrived in 445 BC with new resources. So we can see why this period reminds us of Psalm 85. The nation had been forgiven and yet not fully restored. What Israel experienced in Psalm 85 is paralleled in the experience of believers today as H.C. Leipold writes that we have here a psalm before us in which a very hopeful situation failed and the people were driven to prayer that God might nevertheless bring their hopes to pass. Maybe you have a dream a plan, a vision for the direction of your life. And you you have planned, you've gone to school, you, you have done all that you can. And it seems like that thing that you have worked so hard for is never going to come to pass. That's, that's the impulse. That's what this psalm is going to speak to us today. And don't we all need that? Psalm 85 is a prayer for renewal, leading upward in four steps from discouragement to rejoicing. Such a prayer needs confidence even to begin. And so in his opening verses, the psalmist encourages himself to hope for blessing by remembering the grace of God. In verse 1 of this psalm, the psalmist says, Lord, you are favorable to your land. You restore the fortunes of Jacob. Now, this is exactly what happened in the restoration of Jerusalem after God had returned his people from exile in Babylon. The way to be encouraged about the grace of God is to remember how gracious he has been in the past. We're going to camp on that here in just a little bit. But for now, the restoration of Jerusalem is a notable instance of God's grace for his people. In verse 1 of this psalm, it explains why the people were back in their city. The Lord had shown favor to them. The grace or favor of God is a source of all of salvation's blessings. And when we remember how gracious God has been in the past, we are emboldened in prayer for God's grace in the present and for our future needs. John Calvin writes, Nothing contributes more effectually to encourage us to come to the throne of God's grace than than the remembrance of God's former benefits. Every Christian who is facing troubles or suffering may look back to his or her own conversion and be encouraged by the grace of God. 
Paul reasoned in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You may look further back to the cross of Christ where God graciously gave his son to pay the penalty for your sins in your place. In fact, Romans 8.32 argues that God's past gift of his son ensures that he will go on to give whatever we need to be saved when he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, speaking of the cross of Christ, Psalm 85 specifically remembers the favor of God in forgiving Israel's sins. In Psalm 85 too, it says, You forgave the iniquity of your people. And this reminds us that those who realize their need of the help of God must first deal with the problem of their sins. You see, it is only those who are first forgiven and justified through faith in Christ will go on to receive God's merciful care. And yet, how few people value the grace of forgiveness. Even believers often complain against God, forgetting the amazing grace of His forgiving us through the death of His Son. Unbelievers not, uh, not realizing the peril of the judgment of God may not even realize they need to be forgiven. Dr. James Boyce says, The greatest of all miracles that we can receive from God is forgiveness of sins, and it is from this foundation that all other covenant mercies flow, he says. Now, Hebrew poetry tends to make a statement and then amplify or clarify it in a parallel line. Here, God's way of forgiveness is helpfully explained in verse 2 of our chapter today. You covered all their sin. This makes two great statements about forgiveness to us. The first is that God's forgiveness of our sins is by covering them. This refers to the biblical doctrine of atonement where God covers over our sins through the blood of a sacrifice. Old Testament priests sprinkled the blood of bulls and goats on the people to cover their sin. But the true atonement appeared when John the Baptist spied Jesus and cried out in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so our sins too are covered by the spotless righteousness attained for us by Jesus in his own perfect obedience to the law of God. Around the time when Psalm 85 was written, Zechariah saw a vision of Joshua the high priest who was polluted by Israel's sins. The pre-incarnate Christ appeared and declared in Zechariah 3:4, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. The priest's filthy clothes were removed and cleaned. Righteous garments were given uh, him to wear. David Dixon explains what God does to cover our sins when he says, The way of God's forgiving sins is covering them with the imputation of the righteousness of the Redeemer. And the second great point made in Psalm 85 too, it pertains to how many of our sins are forgiven when we trust in Christ. You covered all their sin. Charles Spurgeon says, All of it, every spot and wrinkle, the veil of love has covered it all. Sin has been divinely put out of sight. This teaching is confirmed in 1 John 1, 7 in the New Testament when it says the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, Psalm 85, 2, it involves two theological terms that Christians should know. Atonement, which is the covering of sin by the blood of Christ. And imputation, the clothing of believers with the righteousness of Christ. 
In fact, verse 3 of our chapter today leads us to consider another term that is equally essential, propitiation. When it says, you with you all your wrath, you turned from your hot anger. You see, Jesus died for us not only to cover our sin, but also to turn aside the wrath of God. And since God's nature is love, as 1 John 4, 7 says, once the offense of our sin is removed, so also is the entirety of God's anger towards us. Romans 8, 1 assures us there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There, there is nothing, nothing for anyone to dread in God. Once we have been forgiven of our sins through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ alone. Now notice that the psalmist gives all glory to God for restoring Jerusalem. God is the, the subject of each sentence in Psalm 85, 1-3. And we likewise owe the whole of our forgiveness to the grace of God alone. We have no reason to boast in ourselves as we look back on past salvation blessings. But we do have every reason to boast in and to praise God as we remember his prior grace. At the beginning of our study, I, I asked you, have you ever gone through a time where you're anxious, where you're struggling, where you're fearful, where you have bitterness and resentment? You want to know how to deal with that? Remember the grace of God. Remember that, that what Christ has done in bringing you to God. Remember that you were once an enemy of God. You, you were once enslaved to your sin. You were dead to Dead, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul said. But God made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Remember what Colossians 1, 13-14 says, that you were once under the, the kingdom of darkness, but now you have been delivered into the kingdom of the light of the Son of God. Remember, remember, tell yourself these truths. Take yourself in, by the hand and remember. Now, having seen God's grace and forgiving Israel's sin, the psalmist moves to the second stage of Psalm 85. Having been made bold in praying for God's reviving, this prayer, which is at the heart of Psalm 85, occurs in verses 4 through 7, when it begins in verse 4 of our psalm today. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Now, the psalmist's idea of restoration is that of turning back from sin into God. The verb used in Psalm 85.4 for restore is in fact the primary Hebrew word for turning in repentance. The psalmist realized that even after the Israelites had returned to their land, they still needed to repent of their sins. And so the prophet Haggai rebuked them for withholding tithes, informing them that the poor harvests were God's chastisements in Haggai 1, 9 through 10. And when Nehemiah came to Jerusalem, he found that the people cruelly oppressing their poor neighbors and intermarrying with pagan neighbors, which had led prior generations into idolatry. These sins had to be repented of if the people were to enjoy the blessing of God. And the same need for repentance is true in the life of every Christian today. Sinclair Ferguson explains, Faith cannot exist where there is no repentance. They are the two sides of the same coin of belonging to Jesus Christ alone. The psalmist thus prays for God to turn the people so that God's indignation will be put away in Psalm 85.4. Now, notice, however, that the power to turn from sin, it must come from God. 
Verse 4 marks our turning as an act of God. Repentance restores us to God from our sins by the grace of God at work in us. And therefore, just as the key to expelling darkness is to turn on the light, the key to repentance is to appeal to God's grace through Jesus Christ alone. Paul stated this truth in Titus 2, 11 through 12. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And so far from God's grace relieving Christians of the need to turn from sin, it is supplies the power supply and the instructions that we need to become holy. And now once we realize that God provides us with the power supply to repent and be restored from the reign of sin, we will gladly pray to him just as the psalmist does. In Psalm 85, 5, the psalmist seems almost frustrated with God for the people's failure to repent fully and thus to be released from chastisement when he says, Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? The poet will not be satisfied until God has restored the people, not merely geographically, but by returning them to Jerusalem, but also spiritually by restoring them to faithfulness. Moreover, the faithfulness that the psalmist desires does not merely involve changed behavior. He further seeks for God to renew the people inwardly. In verse 6 he says, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? This was the high ground of David's prayer in Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do you realize that such spiritual transformation is possible in your own life today? It is possible for you uh, not, to, not only to be outwardly led away from uh, wrong and harmful behavior, but actually to have your mind and your heart renewed by the purity of Christ. And this is our calling in Christ, to be clear, in Ephesians 4, 23-24. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Noting the primary corporate nature of Psalm 85's appeal, Christians should pray as well for the revival of the church. In fact, church history shows many instances when the Lord God poured out the Spirit in abundance and brought great masses of people to saving faith in his name. But such revival always begins in the church. James Boyce points out that revivals all arise from the bold preaching of the word of God. The first result of clear Bible teaching is that many people in the church will realize that they're not saved. And then when hearts are awakened to the perils of sin, many are saved through the clear preaching of the gospel. And together with their faith, they repent of their sins, and the world takes notice of the church in a new way, so that even more people give an ear to the word of God, and by the power of God's spirit, they repent and believe and are saved. An example of the revival for which we ought to pray occurred in Ulster starting in 1856. An English woman named Mrs. Colville began visiting neighbors to speak on the new life that Jesus Christ gives. Well, after a few months, she left Ireland, thinking her witness had made no impact. Unknown to her, however, she had made a profound impression on James McClulkin, a rough individual from a nearby town who heard her in, an, in a friend's home. After his conversion, McClulkin began meeting for prayer with some new Christian friends, asking the Lord to bring revival to their churches and towns. Now their prayer group grew, and more and more people came to faith in answer to the pleas to the Lord. 
Encouraged by these signs, a local pastor held a gathering where new believers could tell of their conversions. In March 1859, a large gathering was held at First Presbyterian Church of Ahok Hill, after which believers spread out into the streets, preaching to masses of people. These and further events were later called the 1859 Ulster Revival, during which thousands of people came to saving faith in Jesus Christ alone. But that all began with a few faithful Christians who prayed and preached in the spirit of Psalm 85, 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And now one reason to desire and pray earnestly for spiritual renewal is given in verse 6 of our chapter today. That your people may rejoice in you. Now, here is a secret. It's not so secret, but it is. Many Christians don't understand it. That's what I mean. That so many people, even Christians, do not know about growing in sanctification. This secret is that holiness produces happiness in the Lord. And this happiness comes from knowing more closely the love of God and drinking more deeply from the wells of his salvation. In, in verse 7, the psalmist says, Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Now, the closer we get to the Lord in prayer and the more conformed we are to his holy character, the less we will complain and the more we will rejoice. In fact, more, moreover, note that the people will rejoice in you, verse 6. That is to say, the more we realize how deeply God loves us, the more our rejoicing will focus not on the gifts that he gives, but on the giver himself in his steadfast love and mercy. And so if we want to experience greater happiness, the revival prayer of Psalm 85 presents an ideal place. Now the psalmist has just prayed for a restoration that involves repentance and the reviving of people's spirits. It does not seem, however, that God has yet granted his request. It, it will likewise often happen to us the same way, that when we pray for God to enable us to repent and to revive our spirits and godliness, yet God leaves us for a while to continue wrestling with our doubts and questions. And so the third step of a renewal involves waiting for God's blessing. Psalm 85, 8 says, Let me hear what the Lord, God the Lord will speak. The prophet Habakkuk was famous for sitting in his watchtower to await the Lord's answer to his questions. God had promised to destroy Israel by means of the evil Babylonian army. The prophet could not understand how a holy God could allow people who were even more wicked than the Israelites to destroy the city. And so he writes in Habakkuk 2.1, I will take my stand at my watchtower, at my watch post, and, and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what i will answer concerning my complaint now it did not take long for god to come with a revelation explaining his further plans of salvation so that the prophet was able to be content when he says in habakkuk 220 the lord is in his holy temple let all the earth keep silent before him and so psalm 85 8 through 9 makes four very brief but important points about why we need to wait on the Lord. The first is that we must wait confidently when he says, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. And so even though God's reviving grace had not yet come, the psalmist was confident that it would. And if he could take this attitude, those who belong to Christ can be even more sure that the future holds words of peace and blessing from God. If we are able to say the opening words of Psalm 23 through faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord is my shepherd, well, we can be sure to experience its end. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
And as the psalmist waited confidently for the blessing of God, so must we. Secondly, those who are waiting for God to help them must be sure not to fall backward. Psalm 85.8 says, But let them not turn back to folly. So if God has enabled you to turn from one sin, do not fall back into it while you're waiting for deliverance from another. Do not return to bad habits while you're waiting for new grace. Just as a doctor will often allow a period of healing between rounds of medicine, God sometimes gives time for his various mercies to settle in our lives. The best way then for us to accelerate his grace is to fully uh, consolidate the grace he has already given to us. Third, while we wait for God's blessing, knowing that it is sure to come, he says in verse 9, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. How often in the scripture, the outward circumstance of God's people, it remained desperate when in fact his deliverance was about to arrive. All they had to do was believe a little while longer. You see, God is more than ready to bless us when we're ready to be blessed. And so, for example, when Moses asked to see the glory of God, he heard these words in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. As Micah 7.18 declares, God delights in steadfast love, and so we can be sure that his help is near. Fourth, while we wait for the blessing of God, our hearts should be set on his glory. Verse 9 of our chapter today says, That glory may dwell in our land. And so the psalmist desires Israel to be restored, so that the Lord's worship would resume in Jerusalem from gladdened hearts. Our chief aim, even in our own blessing and spiritual renewal, should be that God would have the praise of his grace deserves from our lives. And while we're waiting up for more grace, we should be motivated by the greater glory of God and not simply by our own desire for peace and prosperity. Now, this psalm also shows us that a prayer for restoration, it remembers God's grace, it asks for God's reviving, it waits for God's blessing. And so the psalmist concludes with verses embracing God's promise and faith. In fact, in verses 10 through 11 of our psalm, the psalmist paints a picture of gospel blessings surrounding the believer. He sees the steadfast love and the faithfulness shaking hands, righteousness and peace kissing, truth springing up from the earth, and righteousness smiling down from heaven. Spurgeon points out how all of these attributes find their full expression in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. In the end, the attributes of God unite in glad unanimity in the salvation of guilty men. Calvin sees these verses as celebrating the reign of God's grace in the kingdom of Christ, showing how bountifully God deals with his church after he is reconciled to her. Now, the first couplet states that steadfast love and faithfulness mean in verse 10, or as a more familiar King James puts it, with equal accuracy, mercy and truth are met together. This scene is heightened in the parallel line, righteous and peace kiss each other in verse 10. The point in both lines is that the attributes of God that have been at odds in our salvation are now brought together in peace. George Horn writes, These four divine attributes parted at the fall of Adam and meet again at the birth of Christ. Mercy was ever inclined to save men, and peace could not be his enemy. But truth exacted the performance of God's threat. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And righteousness could not but give to every one his due. And so it's easy to see why this scene is understood as pointing forward to Christ alone. For it is in him only that this situation takes place in God's word. Of all the world's religions, only Christianity sees God as showing mercy to sinners <coughs> without violating his truth. 
and God's righteousness as entering into holy union with his peace towards transgressors. Horace states that only the Christian gospel can satisfy the demands of all these claimants and restore a union between them which can show how God's word can be true and his work just and the sinner notwithstanding find mercy and obtain peace. We need to talk very carefully where this progression begins, starting with the Hebrew noun hesed, which is translated as either mercy or steadfast love. Hesed encompasses the covenant grace of God to his people. This sovereign mercy, together with God's faithfulness to his promises, causes righteousness and peace to join at the cross of Christ. At, at Calvary, God fulfilled the demands of his justice down to the smallest details as Jesus paid the penalty for all of our sins. And so in this way, God's cause of peace triumphed, triumphed for the salvation of sinners who believe in him. And if we desire peace with God, we must first receive the righteousness offered by Christ at its cross, relying on the covenant mercy of God and fulfilling the gospel promise of the holy word of God. Now, the second pair of attributes depicts the results of God's saving mercy in the church. First, faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky in Psalm 85:11. This scene depicts what God does in the life of his people. God's provided a harvest of truth. The word translated as faithfulness most naturally means truth. And his righteousness shines down with divine favor on a people who are justified through faith in Christ. For this reason, Christians are to be faithful people who grow strong by God's truth. We need to remember Jesus' defiant words to Satan in Matthew 4.4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And meanwhile, our hearts flourish in knowing that our sins are forgiven and that we stand accepted, acceptable in God's sight through the righteousness of Christ alone. Calvin writes, Righteousness is represented as looking down from heaven because it is the free gift of God not acquired by the merit of works, and that it comes from heaven because it is not to be found among men. In light of the gospel re reconciliation depicted in Psalm 85, 10 through 11, verse 12 then speaks of earthly blessings from God when it says, Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Now, notice that earthly goods flow from God after spiritual life has been restored. God's concern for our spiritual revival always takes precedence over merely outward or earthly blessings. Verse 13 then concludes, Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This statement concludes the emphasis of this psalm when it comes to our restoration and renewal. So the psalmist's chief concern is God's righteousness and our justification. Until sins are addressed, other matters must wait. The path of blessing is ever that which begins with justification through faith and then proceeds by obedience to the law of God. Having been made right with God and walking according to his word, we may expect an abundance of every kind of blessing from the hand of a kind and lovely redeemer together with many trials for our, our good. In Christ, we have all things past forgiveness, present grace, future glory, which is why the Old Testament provides so many signposts, all pointing to Jesus Christ alone. Isaiah foretold his coming as a reign of peace. As Matthew 3.3 3 says, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector of England after his civil war, once spoke on Psalm 85 before the Parliament. He said, Yesterday I did read a psalm which truly may not unbecome both to me, to me to tell you and of you to observe. 
It is the 85th Psalm. It is very instructive and significant. And though I do put a little touch upon it, I desire your persuasal and pleasure. Cromwell then expounded from the psalm an ideal society where the virtues of the grace of God would shake hands and kiss. Well, historians would find this aspiration to be ironic, since Cromwell's reign is largely known for harshness and even tyranny. The hopes expressed by this psalm find their fulfillment only in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And yet, in our lives, in our homes, in his church, we may earnestly aspire to this lovely harmony of blessings, looking forward to the day when Jesus returns and these blessings come to life forever in full color and abounding grace. Now, in applying Psalm 85, we should chiefly observe that the psalmist's refusal to settle for a low spiritual plane or a partial restoration of Israel. Carl Calvin Beisner writes, Just so the Christian must not be satisfied with a partial work of God's grace in his life, not justification only, but sanctification also must be the goal of the Christian life. That is, no Christian should be satisfied merely to be delivered from the penalty of sin, he says, we must press on in prayer until God has delivered us from sin's power. Christians know that while perfection will never be achieved in this life, our destiny is to bear the image of Christ's glory in 1 Corinthians 15, 49. And with this in mind, we must press on in prayer and faith in his name. Psalm 85 urges us to pray with vigor for those who do not know Christ. They, they have not even started the progression of the psalm. They have not received God's grace. Their sins remain unforgiven. And God's, grath, God's wrath is not withdrawn from their souls. How can we claim to love our neighbors if we do not even pray for their salvation? Psalm 85 also calls us to pray for the spiritual vitality of our local church. We see some Christians falling prey to sin and others even suffering persecution today. So we must pray for God's grace to strengthen both the tempted and the oppressed of faith. We see ministries struggling to bear fruit and divisions rendering the Christian community. We should pray for God's mercy to establish truth and God's righteousness to bring peace and harmony. And yet, above all of this, Psalm 85 urges us to long for Christ to be exalted in the hearts of his people and through our witness to be embraced by sinners who are still in the world. And so just as the psalmist concludes with the harmony of grace in the joyful setting of Christ's kingdom, so also is Jesus Christ alone the only hope of the world. Matthew 11:28-29 says this, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the end of our time today, we're, we're reminded that we have such a great need of you. We have, an, 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 as your people, we have such an ongoing need of you. And you have given us the rich resources of your grace. You, you have signed and sealed us in the Holy Spirit. You've given us the Spirit. We're indwelt by the Spirit. We're empowered by the Spirit. In every way, your superabounding grace, your, the ministry of your spirit towards us, your high priestly ministry towards us, we are, we are truly blessed. And yet, we fail to remember. Lord, forgive us for the many ways in which we are apathetic towards this costly grace and towards your ministry towards us even now. Forgive us, Lord, for the many ways in which we walk in our own strength, we walk in our own power, even those of us in ministry. Lord, help us to seek you 
as you are found in the Word. Help us to know you as you are known only in and through the Word of God. And help us to walk by the power of your Spirit for your honor and glory and to make disciples and to bear much fruit according to your providence and, and your plan for your honor and glory alone. Help us, Lord, to stay focused at our gaze in the midst of all that is going on in our world and in our own personal world. Help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on the one who is utterly sufficient in every way to meet our greatest need and our ongoing need. Oh, Lord, what amazing grace and how sweet the sound, as Newton said, it is. Help us to be astonished daily, even every moment, as we pause to reflect on the grace of God revealed in the Word. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen and amen.